This week on The Vergecast, we'll take you through the highlights of Computex, Liz Lopato rejoins us for This Week in Elon, and Alex Kranz loses her f***ing mind. Is e-ink coming to the iPhone? That's coming up right after this. Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello and welcome to Vergecast, the flagship podcast of free speech in America. Are we? Or deals coverage. <laughs> the problem with the tech industry right now is like, we're going to talk about coffee tech. We're going to talk about laptops. Yeah. But an equal amount of people are interested in the cool new laptops out of Computex is the torture deal machinations of Elon buying Twitter, which means that we now run like a finance site. Yeah. We run like an M&A site. It's good. We've I've always thought our future is hardcore Wall Street coverage. I know more about the SEC now than I did a couple of weeks ago. I know more jokes that the SEC's name could stand for <laughs> just because of Elon's feed. Anyhow, there's a lot going on this week. It is true. There's Computex. Uh, there's more Elon Twitter. We got a lightning round. But I'm Neelai. I'm your friend. David Pierce is here. Hi. I'm your friend who will always just tell you to go ahead and buy a MacBook Air. No matter what you want, I will just tell you to buy a MacBook Air. <laughs> like at the end of the day, though, <laughs> really. I get it. You know, there's new Airs coming out. This is like the worst time to tell people to buy a MacBook Air. Just buy a MacBook Air. It's fine. Right. <laughs> You're going to be fine. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Alex Kranz is here. And Alex is going to run the whole show with us. How are you doing? Yeah. I'm going to be that person that tells you not to buy the MacBook Air. See, we had just been... hold off. <laughs> just wait. Alex tells you to build your own PC. It's yeah, no just problem. Build it yourself. It's, it's faster. Easy. Those are actually like the two farthest ends of the traditional PC spectrum, you understand. Yeah. Yeah. I also think they might be the only options. Like I I don't know that there's anyone who exists between those two sides of the spectrum. It's HP, Hewlett Packard, <laughs> the whole company. All right. There is a lot going on. Like I said, there's Computex this week, so lots of t- Computex news. Uh, Liz is going to come on. We're going to talk about Elon and Twitter and where that deal is. And then um, I think we're just going to spend about two hours talking about Amazon adding a USB-C port to the Fire 7 tablet. Doesn't yes. that seem like us? Like we would just, that's what we would land on for the last two hours of the show. It is the thing in the rundown that made me go, yes, as I was reading it. <laughs> so I don't know what to make of that, but here we are. David, I think you put this rundown together. There's no uh, Project Gen 5 cis news on here. Whoa. It's a real mess, dude. It's erasure. Our nation's fourth 5G network uh, stumbles <laughs> to reality. My favorite sort of running 
thing about the tech industry is everybody's bad slides. And unfortunately, there were no bad slides. This week. <laughs> There's nothing uh, I can read. <laughs> there were no bad slides. And so, uh, yeah, we're just we're just stuck in Vegas with no service ever. I'm just going to look at my new favorite site, which is FierceWireless.com, which is a hardcore <laughs> trade publication for the wireless industry. Oh, see, look, here's some news. I see. What were you doing, David? Uh, <sighs> did you know that the new director of the National Spectrum Consortium has issued some comments on ORAM? Are they good comments? Bad comments? <laughs> what they are is not important. It's just that they exist. <laughs> it's just when you see the NSC, you don't think the National Spectrum Consortium. <laughs> You're like, no, actually, the National Security Council didn't say anything about Iran. <laughs> this industry trade pub got into it. Anyway, um, they're confident that they will accelerate the ne- development of next generation technologies critical to support U.S. competitiveness. In case you're wondering what the status of Oran is. That's good. I know all of our listeners are worried about the status of Oran. I think they are. David's like, you know, like we're spinning up these new episodes. Like Alice got her mini series where she's like, yeah, Ploop a dupe is going to make you a trackball. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do one that's just like a deep dive on Oran. You know that thing on The Office where, where Ryan just opens up a Word document, writes a fake URL at the top, and gives it to Creed for his own <laughs> blog? We're going to give you a podcast that's just for you. It's going to be it's going to be nine hours long and it is not going to be it's not going to be safe for the broader Internet. Andrew and I are going to get together or we're going to make a cover song of Iran by Flock of Seagulls. But about <laughs> OK, that I meant too. All I'm saying is I'm obsessed with this wireless technology. I hope you are, too. If you work at the Oran Association, leak me some documents. <laughs> huh? That could be a way for us to become friends. You and me together. All right. Let's get out of the realm of the theoretical and into the realm of the extremely real which is hardcore Windows laptops. David, <laughs> you're, this is a long list of hardcore Windows. Well, I guess there's a couple of Chromebooks in the mix. This is the time. What's going on at Computex? Tell people what Computex is. Yeah, so Computex is a huge, like truly huge conference that happens every year in Taiwan. And basically this week, I think along with CES, is probably the time when we get like the peek into computers like like good old-fashioned computers and like (laughs) ces is like a tv and car show computex is when people are just like 13 inch laptops let's do this and then they just like throw them out of a truck at you this year was both like i mean to be honest i don't know what i expect because it's laptops like laptops are laptops are laptops and we had that like one cool phase a bunch of years ago where everybody tried to change things and then nothing has really changed and now there was a ton of news There were a bunch of new laptops, including a bunch of really good ones. And I would say, generally speaking, not a lot of like wild new ideas about laptops. So we basically have you have companies like Acer and Asus who are just out here launching every laptop they can possibly think of. And the big upgrade this year is they're all going from 11th generation Intel processors to 12th generation Intel processors, which is a big deal. Big performance, big battery. It's all very exciting. It's also just the thing that happens every time there's new Intel (laughs) I mean, you say that nothing big happened, but it looks like Acer has a laptop that's going to have 3D content on it. Yeah. That seems very 2009. A laptop that'll make you dizzy. Yes. No, we are definitely in the part of the tech hardware cycle where they assume that people who were around for these ideas 10 years ago are... Uh, like have children or jobs, <laughs> you know, like they're like you, they won't remember. And I was like, no, we're still here, bro. Like it's really true. I remember when you tried to do stereoscopic displays, the first yep. time. <laughs> but now they're burying it under more complicated terms. Uh, I think the one for this one, so it's the, 
It's the Acer Predator Helios 300, which is an unbelievably great name for a laptop. That's a, that is a great name. I'm super in on that. Uh, it's a 15.6 inch laptop, has a 4K display, and the the description of how of what Acer did is it has a liquid crystal lenticular lens optically bonded on top of it, and it can toggle between 2D and 3D modes. Does that sound cool as hell? Yes. Does it mean anything? Almost certainly not. And are you going to want to use it? No, but it sounds rad, so I'm into it. I don't care. So the lenticular lens is the thing that lets it send images out in two different directions. That is a very familiar... You've seen one of these before in your life. I think what they're doing is they're when they say optically bonded, what they mean is our glue is really cool. Um, <laughs> so they've glued it, they've laminated it very tightly to the main display, and then they've got this additional. Te- Monica did a whole write up of this tech spatial labs uh, in like last year, like almost exactly a year ago. She like went and like did the piece on spatial labs and Acer. The questions she had then was like, "Oh, this demo is really cool. When are you going to ship it? What are people going to use it for?" And they were like. 3D design, some answers. Um, she actually had one. They sent one to her, but it's very much like now they're shipping one and they're, they're like 50 games. Yeah. <laughs> it appears like the... With the promise of more to come, which is one of those sentences that you just hear like a wah-wah at the end of. 51 games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, I think that's the thing with all of this. And this is true of like, there's a lot of this happening in the PC space right now where there's stuff coming that you're like, oh, that's neat. And then you're like, will it change anything about how I do anything? No, it's like I, that's how I felt about the, the 360 hinges on laptops that have been coming around for forever. You look at it and it's like, oh, that's cool. I can, you know, I can prop it up like a tent. And that's like sort of <laughs> it's neat in a, in a way. But I have never once in my life. I think I would die of joy if I like walked into Starbucks and somebody was using their Lenovo yoga in tent mode. Nothing. Yeah. I would I would shake their hand and ask them many questions. Do you remember when Lenovo would like put on the icons of the modes in the marketing? They'd be like, oh, yeah, tent mode wide mode and wide mode was just like laying totally flat for no reason <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like flipped around mode and like they'd actually drawn icons for all of this here's my theory about all of this all of this is designed by people who have like cool jobs you know mm-hmm. like if you're a laptop designer you have like a stereotypically cool job like if you were cast in a rom-com and you're like what's the cool job for your character in the rom-com like laptop laptop designers like on the list yep it's right up there with like print magazine editor who just circles things on a glass wall, which is my dream. <laughs> I've been doing this for 10 years. I've never circled one thing on a glass wall. And have you carried a large binder full of loose leaf paper with all of the magazine inside? No. And uh, p- every now and again, people ask me when I'm going to, if like, are you going to leave the road? You like, you happy there? I'm like, well, I haven't circled anything on a wall yet. So we've got a ways to go <laughs> before I've reached my goals. But right. You've these stereotypical jobs. And so you imagine these moments when like someone like takes their laptop and they put it into tent mode or like they're like, hang on, let me push this button. And then like the building flies out of the front of the laptop Whoa. and spins around in 3D. And you're like, this is the, the <laughs> coolest. Yep. Not only do I have a cool job, but I have a cool piece of hardware that enables me to do my cool job in the coolest possible way. And then in real life, most people are like, my job is Excel. Yeah. And when I actually do 3D design, I need a very powerful computer that's plugged into the wall, which I think is how you get from that demo to 50 games. I think that's right. And that's fine and good for that device. 3D is actually the best thing to ever happen to Excel. I, if you're one of the 3D Excel Go fans on. out there, can I... Like the number's just flying at your face. <laughs> These tables really do pivot. Um, uh, can I just say this? We did the decoder episode with Kat Norton, Miss Excel, and I was like, 
mm-hmm. maybe the third piece of media she'd ever done, but it went, so we weren't first by any means and she's wonderful and she deserves all of her success. But that episode like went viral. And so now like months later, the financial times is writing stories about Excel on TikTok Cause it is just sort of like <laughs> bled its way through the media. <laughs> so we're like the, one of the most stuffiest financial publications is like, Excel is on TikTok, you guys. <laughs> so the learning here is that Excel is like they always say, you know, porn drives new technology. Like, no, 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 it's actually Excel. They're, yeah, one of the real theses of decoder is like every job is Excel. And if I just spend an hour with you, you will admit to me when your job turns into Excel. <laughs> but no, I think the, the thing that was interesting to me about Computex was exactly that thing that you just said, right? Where there's like all these nifty things that everybody is perpetually working on. And we see this at CES every year too. There's like three bonkers new ideas about how you can put a screen and a keyboard together. Uh, and what it turns out people actually want is just a laptop. Uh, but then you get a couple of things like there was uh, Acer has this new thing called the Spin 714 that Monica on our team, who has basically seen every laptop that exists, is super excited about. And it's basically just like they took a good Chromebook and made it nice looking which sounds like a relatively small thing, but it's not at all a small thing. And like, that's cool and exciting. And then you have like the, the HP Spectre, which is, I think like for years now, one of the sort of go to, if you're going to buy a windows laptop, it's like the XPS 13 and the Spectre X 360. Like just buy one of those. You'll be very happy. Wait, I'm sorry. You think this computer looks good? I mean, have you seen a normal Acer Chromebook? Yeah. 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 But they're in, they're in the competition with a new hot looking HP Spectre Chromebook. Right, which is like a, it's a, it's a thousand dollars, but that thing looks great. I'm just looking at a picture of this, and I'm telling you that on the bottom right corner of the display, there is a giant HDMI sticker. Well, you gotta know. <laughs> like this is exciting HDMI. What? No, you're. I will say you're actually missing the worst part, which <laughs> okay. is that above the display on the left, it says in in teeny tiny little letters, it says antimicrobial corn and gorilla glass. <laughs> At the very top left of the screen. This is like they couldn't get the good stickers, so they took any money. You know, like the HDMI Foundation was like, yeah, we got 20 bucks. Will that get us a slot? You know, and it's like it's the ad that would normally be on like the back of the NASCAR, like underneath the tailpipe. Like that's the money. And they're like, no, no, actually on this computer, you can have it right on the front. Now everyone will know. Also, I can't believe this is true. That the HDMI sticker is not on the same side of the computer as the HDMI port. <laughs> it's just telling you it exists. Yeah, it has HDMI. But uh, it's, 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 it's plenty of Somewhere here is HDMI. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm in the market for a new. So this is seven hundred and fifty dollars, which is expensive for a Chromebook. But it mm. is also true that you know the HP, the new HP one is like floating at a thousand and above. Yeah, and this one, like the specs on this one, are very good. It's like a. Like high the level i7 current gen Intel processor, like good storage, good RAM. Like it's it's just a good computer, which you can't say of a lot of Chromebooks. You know what it has is an HDMI port. <laughs> Not a lot of them can say that. Yeah, and this one actually says it to you every time you look at it. Uh, look, I'm in love with a high end, powerful Chromebook that looks cool. So uh, you know, I'll put this on my little my little to do list, but it's going to come with like the Gorilla. Or what's the stuff? The Gugon. Mm-hmm. Can I say the the first one we talked about is the ROG Flow X16, the ASUS. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's in, actually the displays on all these are fascinating. So we talked about the one that does uh, spatial 3D. This one 
mini LED display with 512 dimming zones. Mini LED is starting to come down, right? The MacBook Pros had them. MacBook Pros are obviously a little bit more expensive. I think it's fascinating to see, okay, this display style is coming down. And then there's one with a new OLED. There's like an inexpensive OLED display. Yeah, it's called the Acer Swift 3. Like affordable OLED. Yeah. Like $750? 800. I mean, that's it. How, how big is that screen? It's a 14 inch. It's 899 and substantially cheaper than your average OLED laptop uh, and looks really nice. And yeah, that's one of the things like outside of all the, the wacky shit that everybody is perpetually trying to do, like just give us better screens. Seems like that's that one's actually happening. It's like make the processors faster, make the screens better, make the keyboards not horrible. Like that is the recipe for a pretty good laptop. I do think the prices are interesting too because for the longest time like most laptops sold were like under $500. Everybody just wants cheap 1080p 15-inch display. Great. And now we've got a lot of sub $1000 laptops with like high-end monitors in them. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. Like an OLED for under a grand. Yeah. Would not have thought of that ever. Can I can I tell you this story? We um so we had the guy Alan Young on Decoder, the Foxconn guy. Mm-hmm. Then Josh Trez and I, a couple days after that episode, we took a call from a guy who's been in the display industry for a long time, cantankerous older gentleman who was like, Foxconn was always a lie. They're never building anything. I know all these. So we're like, we got to take this call. So we get in the call and we're like expecting to hear whatever. It was a good call. I'm not going to reveal everything he said. But it was like an old school display manufacturing executive called to tell us I've been following your coverage. Here's some things you missed. Go chase it down. I know these guys. It was obvious to everybody in the industry. They're never building a factory. And then he's like, I know people like OLEDs. And I know you like your mini LEDs. But LCDs are just always going to win. You can always just build them. They're getting better <laughs> and faster. And I started laughing. He's like, why are you laughing? I was like, my whole house is OLEDs and mini LEDs. Like, <laughs> there's four TVs in the house. Three of them are, are – one of them is plasma. There's two OLEDs. And my, you know, my laptop's mini LEDs. And he's like – how are you? I tell your readers, don't buy the TVs I'm buying. It was just like <laughs> the harshest burn I've ever heard. Was so just his like, whole case is just, we're going to keep making LCDs? Yeah. That's it? He was like, plasma is a flash in the fucking pan. And you know, this OLED stuff, they're never going to get brighter. They're all going to die. People are going to realize it was a disaster. LCDs, that's, that's always the future. And I was like, you know, I got I like, like my LG OLED. He's like, tell your readers. Don't buy what you're buying. <laughs> I was like, God damn. Wow. See, this is the stuff that happens at trade shows. The the like it's like some sharks and jets stuff. Like <laughs> there's like the OLED crew walks into the bar that the L C D crew is already in and it like things get quiet and there's it's like it's a scene. This is yeah. what happens at Computex every year. Every year at Computex, there is a musical theater gang fight <laughs> between various display manufacturers. They're just hammering TVs over each other's heads. All right, let's talk about these two, this super bulky Chromebook. I just think the fact that Chromebooks are, they're starting to hit new form factors outside of the, we made a $300 one to throw in your kid's classroom and get destroyed. So now they've got, Acer's got this Chromebook Tab 510 which has LTE, which is fascinating for a Chromebook for many reasons. Uh, it's also just like super rugged. Yeah, the idea is basically like it's a, I think it's four hundred bucks, and it's not a particularly like impressive looking or super powerful device. It's running on a the Qualcomm Snapdragon Seven C chip, which is basically this is designed to be a much more like mobile thing. And in their press release and stuff, Acer talks about it as like a mobile like video conferencing system. So it's a mobile device running a Google operating system 
with a cell radio that's designed to make calls. <laughs> Go on. I'm just saying, like, they made a 7-inch Android phone. Yes. <laughs> but it runs Chrome OS. It's 10.1 inches. No, it's 10.1. It, sorry, it has the um, the exact same uh, aspect ratio as the Nexus 7, and I've assumed <laughs> that it is exactly that size in every picture. Much larger pixels. Well, and it's it's weird that that others are doing this because, like, Google, as we talked about in the show, is has this very specific idea about what Chrome OS is for, right? They see it as, like, an enterprise thing and an education thing. And, like, Rick Osterloh basically said exactly that to me. And they think of Android as the mass consumer main thing. And also... Android is so much better tuned to like mobile systems. It's like you can also make video calls on your phone, which has LTE. Some of them even have a stylus and a keyboard. Like it's crazy. But yeah, so the the existence of this thing from Acer, I think is A, nobody throws computers against the wall like Acer does. So yeah. I sort of love it for that anyway. But also just the idea that everybody is still out there experimenting, even as Google is trying to like segment Chrome OS into this teeny tiny little box is really interesting to me. How is it supposed to be the, the video Chromebook when it's, it has a five megapixel webcam? Right, because, I mean, have you seen any Apple webcam? People <laughs> crash shop in this room and be like, whatever, it's cheap. I can shoot a gun at it. And like, <laughs> you could probably shoot a gun at this and it would be okay. It's got a stylus. It's so thick. It's it's a chunk. It's got a garage for the stylus. I like the little pinstripe texture on the back. I mean, I don't, I don't. It's not that I like it so much that I'd purchase it. I'm just saying, it's better than the normal thing. It's very 2014. Yeah, like it. It just looks like this would have been super cool in 2014. Yeah, and eight years later, it just is existing. Eight years yeah. later, it's like we have LTE guys. <laughs> you heard about the fourth G? Cranes, I want to talk to you about the sort of chip situation. All these, but lastly. We should talk about the framework, which, David, you dove into. This is a modular laptop that we've covered for a long time. It seems like they're they're living up to their promise in some ways. Yeah, so the framework laptop launched a little over a year ago. And its whole thing is basically it's a relatively normal laptop, like not, no crazy ideas about laptops, no super new specs. But its whole thing is being modular and repairable and upgradable. So their their whole idea is you shouldn't have to buy a new laptop every time you want a new laptop. And they came out this year with, they call it a new framework laptop, but basically all it is, is a new mainboard. And it has the 12th generation Intel chip. It's faster. It has all this stuff. You can buy it in a new body if you want, but you can also just slot it into your existing framework laptop. And that is a really big deal. Framework made the same promises that a million other companies have made over the years, right? There's Project Dara. Intel has done this a bunch of times. Everybody has tried to make modular gadgets and everybody gives up on them immediately. And Framework, at least, is like out here doing the thing. They made the one. It's different than like Alienware and MSI and what all those guys were doing a couple of years ago where they were putting like i9 processors, desktop processors into laptops. Like these are actual laptop processors. Yeah, basically they're, they're taking the like the Intel, you know, the 12th generation, the i5s and the i7s, and they'll just sell you the main board and you just you just stick it in where everything else is. And all the stuff, it, you can screw all the parts in and out. They have little ports for expansion stuff. So if you want an HDMI port, you put it in. Ethernet, you put it in. It's just, it's a little box that you fill with all the computer parts that you want. And it's kind of cool because it's like, it's a new computer, but it's also just like new parts for your old computer that make it a new computer, which is just like wacky new paradigm of thinking about how people buy computers that I think is very cool. Old paradigm. I mean, fair. <laughs> there was the best laptop ever made did this. The Motorola Atrix? No. <laughs> no, the, <laughs> the Apple 
G3 PowerBook Pismo. Oh, where you could pull the keyboard right off? Oh, yeah. This was a particularly weird era of Johnny Ive keyboards. Like, we think that we lived through the butterfly era, and that was really bad. But that's because all of you are just too young to have like lived through that era where he was like, what if it was a tiny wafer of nothing and you could also remove it completely, resulting in the springiest keyboard ever made? Also, it will be slightly translucent. So remember, it was like it was like translucent brown. Ugh. But so when you pulled it off, you could do the airport card. Or you could do RAM. Yeah. And you could do the processor. You could do the processor. So other world computing. Right. Okay. So some like other people did the process. Yeah. Some other people made it so you could switch it out because I had that laptop for like four or five, like I had it for over 10 years because I could just replace the, the old crummy G3 with a slightly less crummy G3. Yeah. And then a G4. And then the internet started to exist and the computer died. Did you have the moment of upgrading that laptop? Where like starting it up every time was like a little bit of an adventure. Yes, because I had a I had a G four tower and I upgraded like all the RAM and I swapped out the processor and the video card and by the end I'd be like I can't turn off my computer. <laughs> it might never turn, never off turn again. on again. Like you just did never restarted it. If it restarted, you were like, well, <laughs> yeah, like, time to go buy a new laptop. This might be it. Like you look at the jar of change. Be like, I hope that there's <laughs> enough in there. Speaking of Macs, it does look exactly like a MacBook Pro or MacBook Air, right? Yeah, and they're like, I think basically okay with that idea. Like the the when I talked to to Nirav, the founder of Framework. A while back, he was basically like, "We've the the industry has gotten a lot of things about laptops right. Like, we don't need to screw those things up while we try to also do this other thing. Like, yeah. let's just make a laptop that is nice and looks nice, but also does these other things, which I 100 percent think is the right approach." And then they changed the the top cover. Can you replace the top cover if you have the old one too? Yeah. So Framework will actually sell you. They call it an upgrade kit, and I think it's 580 bucks or something. That is basically the new mainboard and the top cover and the big knock on the first version was just that it felt kind of, I don't know, flaky. Like it just didn't feel like a particularly solid laptop, which is a a possibility for something that is basically just a bunch of pieces screwed together. Like they didn't do any particularly impressive building. So to have it be a little more rigid, like it just took them time. But the idea is now they've like, I don't know, done something to the process. So the top cover is a little more rigid and they'll sell you that too, if you want, or you can just buy like the whole new package, which comes with that new top. Lots of new laptops, lots of new chips. The framework is interesting, right? It's a new, more powerful chip in the same cooling setup as the old one. Alex, what should we be thinking about chips and all these new computers? I mean, th- we sold these chips like what back in February, I think, is when they announced all of this stuff. So it was kind of like exciting to finally see them in the things. I think right now, though, the big question is how good actually are they, right? Like, how good are they doing on battery life? How are, uh, everything else? Acer historically is one of the first like folks out of the gate. With, with new processors and stuff. So these will be some of the first ones. They'll try anything. Yeah, they'll try anything. I mean, that's the thing. It's like Acer in particular loves to just try anything. They love to do anything. They're just like, let's see. Because they have just such a huge business. They can afford to do this. They're like, what? I think they're fourth now as far as laptops go. But I think there's right now it's just there's a lot of questions. We're seeing them in stuff. We're not seeing laptops that are a lot thinner or a lot chunkier. We're not seeing big changes in battery size. So there's definitely some questions to be had about how much faster are they actually? How much better is the battery life? But we have to actually get a hold of them and start testing them, I think. Am I right in thinking that how that turns out is like 
kind of huge and important for Intel? Because I feel like we're at this moment now where, you know, AMD is doing really interesting stuff. Qualcomm is coming along and it feels like Intel has been making noise about, you know, we're, we're getting back to winning at this stuff. And it feels like the Alder Lake stuff is coming out kind of slowly. And it feels like how it turns out and how some of these reviews go feel like it's going to be a really big deal. I think they would like it to be a big deal. <laughs> I don't know how big a deal it is actually going to be, okay. right? Like, I think Intel has been so behind the curve for so long that it's just like, we'll all be like, oh my God, they caught up. But I think it's a real question of, are they going to absolutely surpass? And I think we saw that with the last generation, right? The 11th generation, we started to see like, oh, they're doing good work here. They've caught up with AMD. So ideally, this is like, are they continuing to do it? Was that just a flash in the pan or can they continue to stay ahead of AMD? And they keep making this noise about using TSMC as a fab. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if they can actually decouple their designs and make a five nanometer design, which is like, I mean, like if you're at Intel and that's what proposed to you, like yeah. decouple design from manufacturing and make a five nanometer design for TSMC to make like that is just so far outside of the DNA of Intel that like that company could just have like an allergic reaction to this, this idea. But that's right. what they're threatening to do. Yeah. Like, I mean, they kind of have to, right? Their their foundries just aren't capable of producing the chips that they need to produce to stay competitive in the market. And they've, they've said, well, we're going to build our Silicon Sun Valley or whatever they're calling the thing in Ohio. It's the Silicon Heartland. Excuse me, the Silicon Heartland. Like, they said they're, they're going to do all of this stuff, but that's still years away. And I think we're kind of stuck in a spot for them where they're like, yeah, the really cool stuff is coming. Like, we kind of have it right now. Yeah, we'll see. I I think the answer is we'll see, especially if that Ohio factory comes online. But, right, what are we going to do when we test these laptops? We're going to pit them up against a bunch of M-series chips and say, where's the performance versus the battery life? And I think the battery life is actually more important. I would 100%. Like, battery life is where everybody's going. And they've all kind of started to change their philosophy on battery life, too, right? Intel, for years, their whole idea was we get through the processes as quickly as possible so we save you battery life because we're just doing it so fast. And then you realize that that's not actually like that doesn't scale well because you're using so much power to get it done quickly that you're still sucking up the battery, which is where this whole big little core thing came from, where it's like we're going to use these really efficient cores. So they're they're really changing. Like not only are they changing how they're like, OK, we're going to decouple. We're not going to build the chips ourselves, but also our entire fundamental philosophy of how we make chips go fast and save battery life. We're going to change that, too. So there's like a lot of stuff they've got to prove consistently. I think they've proven it like once, but they have to repeatedly prove that they can do this. And it's not just a one off because Apple's already doing it. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you say we're going to put these things up against a bunch of M series Max. And I feel like I, you know, I don't want to write reviews before they get done, but I have an odd feeling we know how those benchmarks are going to go based on how this stuff has worked out relatively well. I'm just lapping everybody else in the industry right now. Yeah, like Apple is just so far ahead at the moment. It's crazy. Like I said, just buy a MacBook Air. <laughs> wait, please wait. Yeah, don't buy a MacBook Air now, but like in general, <laughs> buy a but MacBook June Air. June 6th. Wait at least until June 6th. Yeah, it's a good call. We got to take a break. Liz is going to join us. We're talking about Elon. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. 
create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge... That takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're back. Liz Lapata. welcome to the Vergecast. Hi, thanks for having me. Good to be back. This is a segment that we are duty bound by law to call This Week in Elon. <laughs> we, are, we will be at some point in the future relaunching uh, our newsletter that Liz started called This Week in Elon. We, we'll take three Verge reporters to support that newsletter at this time. <laughs> I was saying to somebody earlier that I really like the idea that this week in Elon is going to be way more than weekly. Like it just feels appropriate (laughs) that that's that's how it's going to work. This hour in Elon. This moment in Elon history. Okay, let's discuss where Elon and Twitter are now. And then Elon has done and said a number of other things this week that connect to this deal, don't connect to this deal, provided a provoked a, a range of reactions. But let's start with the deal. Well, I just want to be super clear is that the deal's still happening no matter what Elon Musk says about it. Like, look, I think you all know that I'm like a longtime reader of Matt Levine. I've been reading him since the financial crisis when he was a deal breaker. Matt Levine is a columnist at Bloomberg. Yeah, that's right. There's a thing that he said about this that I like can't get out of my head, which is like, if you have to look at the contract for the deal... You've already lost. Yeah. And so I'm seeing all of these people on Twitter who are like, oh, but he can't disparage Twitter. And it's like, it's Elon Musk. He's going to do what he's going to do. The only entity that can enforce the non-disparagement clause is Twitter. And they seem desperately to want to get this deal done. They've filed their proxy. They've said multiple times they think the deal's getting done. It's getting done at this price. They're not renegotiating. And Elon is just doing whatever. Yeah. So let's just start chronologically this week. Um, There are many ways to come at this conversation. I feel as though chronologically is the only one that will provide us sanity. And even then, it's kind of dicey. That might be too high a bar. 
Yeah, I don't I don't think we're going to get to sanity. All right. We can try. Let's try. So for those of you who haven't been paying attention to the stock market, prices have been falling. It's been kind of ugly. And so now the amount that Elon was planning to pay for Twitter, which was 54.20, blaze it, just seems high, if you will. <laughs> so he's been tweeting a bunch of stuff about bots on Twitter. And he's like concerned that there might be too many fake spam bot accounts that might be as many as 20% of Twitter's users, that the deal can't move forward until Twitter proves the accuracy of its actual estimate, which is like 5%, I think. And I just want to pause here and note that in normal deals, these kinds of things get ironed out without me watching in a process called due diligence, which Elon Musk did not do on this deal. Declined to do. He actually said, I'm relying on Twitter's public statements. He said this publicly. People just don't want to do due diligence, and I don't understand why. Because then they're like, oh, I was surprised by this thing. And it's like, you didn't have to be surprised. Well, also, I will just, this is more Matt Levine quoting, because his newsletter on this stuff is great. And he also keeps referring to Elon Musk as his boss, because he keeps trying to go on vacation, (laughs) and then something happens, and he's like, my boss, Elon Musk, made me write the column again. It's a very funny bit. But his point was, Elon constantly and consistently complains about bots, because Elon's mentions are a disaster. He replied to me last weekend, and then my mentions were a disaster of crypto spam. It was, like, bizarre. So Elon is like deeply aware of the bot issue. He thinks the number is high. Then he says, I'm going to buy Twitter to fix the bot problems. And now his excuse is, I don't want to buy Twitter because I don't believe that their reporting of bots is accurate. And so Twitter for years, like eight years or something, right? Mm-hmm. Has, in their quarterly reports, they're like less than 5% of our monetizable daily active users are bots. Which they have said is not a perfect number, we should say. Like, they, they've always said they say something about like applying significant judgment to it because there's no way to like perfectly poll who is real and who isn't on your platform. But their extremely educated guess over and over and over again has been under 5% of users, less than 5%. But the number, and Liz, this is like a weird number, right? In the industry, is monetizable daily active users, which doesn't map like when you try to compare and contrast the size of Twitter to any other platform, you kind of quickly realize that no one else uses that number that you can't compare dailies to monthlies because monthlies are always higher. More people show up in a month. You can't compare da- monetizable dailies to dailies on other platforms because Twitter is only counting monetizable dailies, which means if you're on Twitter on other platforms, you can't be they can't serve you ads. So you don't count. So it's just this one tiny group of users. Then they're saying less than 5%. For all we know, Elon is like using his own home world Twitter client <laughs> and he doesn't count. Right. Like, so there's just like this weird numerical problem where you, there's no like to like comparison to anything. And then there's Parag Agarwal, the new CEO of Twitter doing lengthy, thoughtful threads about how they calculate the thing to which Elon just replies with a single poop emoji. <laughs> Listen, he understands how to use Twitter. This is more than we could say for certain other technology moguls out here, you know? I will say, though, I just, I don't buy any of this shit around bots. I don't buy any of it. I think this is a negotiating tactic. And, like, you know, Matt Levine came out and called Elon a liar. And I think it's worth mentioning that Elon has directly lied to us at The Verge at least once. So, like, it's not like this is out of character for him to be, you know 
disingenuous, let's say. You should say what the lie is. So we're not like- Do you remember? It was like a Sean O'Kane story. I'm sorry. This is going to take a second. I'm going to need to bring the headline up. But we had asked him some question about uh, whether this rocket launch was true. And in our in his DMs back when we talked to him and he said no. And then we corrected our story, which we had gotten from other sources. And then uh, we had to correct our correction because our first story was right. Yeah, that seems right. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, why do you think we changed our background policy? <laughs> like, we just need to attribute the things to people who say them. So I have a question about this, though. One of the things that I've been trying to figure out is, like, I think I buy all of that logic, right, which is that none of the the shit he's stirring is actually about issues that he has, and it's actually about him trying to get a lower price on Twitter. That makes a certain amount of logical sense. But the part that I don't understand is if that's what you're going to pick, why would you pick bots? Like, why? It's such an odd hobby horse to use to be like your wedge in this fight like why would it be bots aren't a lot of his followers bots like we've heard about elon's bot army like they've inflated Mm. his like reach in a lot of ways right they've inflated his perceived reach so like bots have been good to elon like maybe they've been bad to his mentions but they've been good to him overall so i was kind of surprised that he is now Anti-bots. I have a theory about this, and it has to do with cryptocurrency spam. We know that as of last year, Elon Musk impersonators had stolen more than $2 million in cryptocurrency. It's just that like, a lot of these bots seem to be crypto scammers. And for whatever reason, when they reply to Elon Musk looking like Elon Musk, with the name Elon Musk, but without like actually being Elon Musk... People really do think that there's some kind of crypto giveaway that Elon is doing and click. Yeah. And I can certainly imagine as Musk is like super protective of his army of fans that this is the kind of thing where saying, hey, bots are a real problem and I really want to deal with them is kind of for them. Right. Like they're the ones who get hurt. And They're also crucially the ones who need to be reassured that he's on the level, because I found the story that Musk uh, lied about. It's from December 1st, 2017, and the headline is, Elon Musk told us he was sending a car to space, then said he totally made it up. And you may all remember that he did, in fact, send a car to space. He did. Which ruled. I just want to put that out there. I know that was very controversial at the time. The car in space was awesome. We should just be clear about that. Yeah. If I signed a car to space, I would tell everyone the truth about it forever. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what are you lying about? <laughs> so, you know, like, I, I do think that, like, some degree of this is about his fandom, which he, like, really does seem to care about a lot. And, like, he needs to have a good excuse for why he can back out of the Twitter deal. Not for Twitter, because I don't think he gives a shit about Twitter, but for them. So he's still the good guy. So he isn't a little narrative. Yeah. And so, like, I like I think this is a transparent lie. Like, I think it's an obvious lie. But I also am not I'm not a member of the fan club. Well, so this is all happening in the context of a number of things. So as Liz pointed out, the stock market overall is down ever since he launched the Twitter bid. Tesla stock is coming down both because of the market and because a huge part of his financing is tied to Tesla stock. He's out there in the world trying to find other people to finance the bid with him. Maybe he'll be successful. Maybe he won't. If I had that amount of money, I wouldn't be like, yeah, Twitter, that's where I'm going to get my return on investment. But who knows? (laughs) In fact, a lot of very rich companies have made that particular decision in the past. 
not to buy Twitter. <laughs> it's true. Like, I don't know. Like Bob Iger was like, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. we're not doing that. Like, I think Apple kicked the tires. Salesforce kicked the tires. Uh, and Salesforce will buy anything. Ooh, seriously. <laughs> yeah. um, that's a joke. I don't know. If they'll buy everything. But it just seems like that's, you know, I buy a lot of dumb stuff. And if you have that much money, like a piece of Twitter might be how I think about one more PS five game that I'm not going to play, you know, like who knows? <laughs> yeah. I don't have that much money, but you can, I can, you, you can see how the thought process would scale, but it's a lot of money that is depressing his Tesla stock as he continues to basically take the freshman core curriculum of a liberal arts college on Twitter live <laughs> in person, which is like, it's just a thing he's doing, right? He, he tweets some like asinine thing about what if there was a more moderate party in the United States and literally, Dan Dresner, this is happening right now. Dan Dresner, who was my political science professor in college, says, I beg you to add a political science expert to your tutors. <laughs> See, Jeff Bezos, if you were better at Twitter, this could be you. Yeah. It's just like crazy. He's driving everybody insane. Um, every one of his content moderation ideas, as I've said, is baby tweets for babies. Corin wrote a great piece this week. Obviously, there's an extraordinarily tragic shooting in Buffalo. On the big platform side, Casey made this point in his newsletter. The big platforms did like perfect content moderation of the live stream. Mm -hmm. Twitch had it down in two minutes. Facebook had its sort of usual Facebook stumbles because it is huge. But it started clamping it down, right? Identify it. Twitter clamped it down. Like it was little platforms, like streamable, where things got out of hand and they because they don't have the resources, they don't have the, the teams or the scale, that's where it went. So the big platforms, if you think about it, there was a bad guy, he live-streamed the shooting, this horrific, racist, motivated shooting. He said he was going to do it on Discord. All of this stuff, when the platforms saw it, within minutes, they took action, which is a really right. hard thing to do. Twitter's obviously doing it too. Elon hasn't said a word about this, right? If Elon's Elon's conception of what the content moderation standards on Twitter are or should be, is all legal speech, then your first test case is the video of the shooting, right? You've said, if people want more tight content restrictions, they should pass a law. Otherwise, I'm doing the First Amendment. Problematic for any number of reasons. This is his like core classes education. But this video is legal speech, right? It doesn't meet any of the exceptions. It's just morality and like honestly, as an ad-supported business, like being a place where advertisers want to put their ads leads you to blocking this video immediately. Yep. This is just one of those spots where like you have to be okay with it because you're okay with the First Amendment or you're saying, no, we have to take it down, in which case you have left your principles behind and now you're saying we're going to make judgment calls. That's why he's talking so much, right? Like, like that's why we're seeing so many stupid, inane tweets from him this week, is because like he's distracting us. Like, there's a very real question everybody has for him: is you want to buy Twitter, you want to change how it moderates? Here is your first test case, and he is pointedly ignoring it. So by like being like, I'm going to drop a poo emoji. I'm going to declare I'm a Republican, which is a shock to absolutely no one. Like, <laughs> yeah, dude, you moved to Texas. Like, come on. Like, you don't have that much money and not be. But whatever. Like, he, he's just doing all of this stuff to distract us from the fact that he had this test case and he blew it. Well, he didn't blow it. He just didn't say anything. He didn't say anything because what he would have said, like, if, if he held to his, his principles, quote unquote, of being like the First Amendment guy, 
the First Amendment would require it to stay up. I want to be clear. He said a number of things, but not actually about the shooting, because he did talk about, like, content moderation again. And, like, this time he was like, oh, you don't want to be manipulated by the algorithm. You should get chronological feeds instead. And then he had time for Matt Taibbi. So congratulations to Matt on that about corporate regulation in California. There were images of a SpaceX launch. There was a royal portrait of uh, King Louis XIV of France. And then he, the next day, decided it would be cool to talk a little bit more about the importance of open source code. So it's just, it's, it's a lot of stuff to say nothing that you could engage with if you want, I guess. Although I don't think anybody here needs to have chronological tweets on Twitter explained to them. The feature has existed for years, by the way. You just push that button. You know, it, it, it does feel disingenuous when you've come out as like a free speech advocate. You have this very public test case. And what you're tweeting about is the algorithm. Like, I would understand this if the algorithm you were tweeting about was the one that helps you locate and take down this kind of content, maybe. But that's not what was going on. There's a parallel here, and I feel all like, all four of us have probably done our best to avoid this. But, like, TikTok and YouTube are being taken over by the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp trial, right? Mm-hmm. And that, I would I would just call that, like, this is the algorithm sees demand. There's a lot of demand for it. And then, like, the underlying material is in public domain because it is just state media. Like, the government yeah. is streaming the trial so anyone can use it. That means content creators can use it. So like there's they're filling this gaping amount of demand for this trial and all kinds of bad things are happening. Like I think BuzzFeed had a um, great headline today or yesterday that was like, I can't wait to watch the movie about how we were all wrong about Amber Heard. Yeah. Right. Like it just spiraled on. Like that's the bad algorithm like at play. Like you can see it happening in real time. Like there's demand for this. People are filling it because they will chase the, the YouTube algorithm or the TikTok algorithm. They actually have no idea what they're talking about. People are watching all of it. The algorithm sees even more demand. The cycle continues. There is um, Kat Tenbarge at NBC News did a great piece about um, an Elden Ring video game streamer who has pivoted to Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial coverage. (laughs) And his goal is it's building his views. And he's like, when it's over, I'm going to pivot back to Elden Ring. This is how you get in the partner program. That's what he was saying. He was like, this is how I get enough views to get in. And then I can go back. Then I can go back and now my video game content will be monetized. Like, that's just ice cold. Like, that's the most cynical thing I've ever heard. And if Elon's criticism of the algorithm was pointed at that, it would make sense. His criticism of the algorithm is like Twitter's manipulating you into only seeing the far left stuff that Twitter employees want you to see at the same time that there is a hard right racially motivated shooting in our country, like in the state that I live in. Like, I that to me is it's not that we need Elon to talk about every mass shooting in the country or weigh in on every public event. It's literally the thing that he wants to do would materially change how Twitter responds to these events. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like understanding what he would do in this moment is actually really crucial to understanding how serious his free speech philosophy is. And I, I don't think that he wants to explain that to anyone. I feel like we already understand how serious this free speech philosophy is. Am I wrong? <laughs> I don't know. You know, like it's um, it's Elon. So it's chaos, and I think the character of Elon is more chaotic than the person of Elon, mm-hmm. right? That appears. Like the dude to- was fairly smart. Like how he set up this deal to begin with. A lot of the the, the the original machinations of this Twitter deal, you're like, okay, 
I mean, however I feel about you, this was like kind of cool and smart. And and now it's spitting out because he, like his funding situation, he's like we've now had this horrible event happen that has very pointedly pointed out a massive flaw in his philosophy for moderation. All of this stuff is happening, and he's just like, I know what I'm going to do: erect a billion straw men to distract you from all the things we actually need to be talking about with this deal. Well, and I think part of the reason this stuck out to me so much is that there's like the thing I have always struggled with is. Like the difference between Elon Musk, like the person, and at Elon Musk, the Twitter personality, right? And at Elon Musk is just like a low stakes shit poster, right? Like he doesn't, he mostly doesn't engage on things that actually matter, except to just like sort of talk shit in all directions and and like giggle as everyone freaks out. Uh, this is one of those things that A is very high stakes, B matters to Elon Musk, the person who is theoretically going to own Twitter and will at some point have to make a decision like this and C is going to make an enormous number of people incredibly angry no matter what you pick. And he does not actually tend to engage on that kind of stuff directly all that often. But in this case, if he buys Twitter, he's going to have to. That's the And that's why I feel like the, the silence from him was so strong where it's like, I don't generally care what CEOs have to say after events like this, right? Like, I don't, I don't know that it helps anybody to like get yeah. thoughts and prayers from Bill Gates after the shooting in Buffalo. I don't know if he did that. I'm not picking on Bill Gates specifically, but in this case, it's like at some point, someone is going to walk into a room and say, Elon, what do we do? And he's going to have to decide and like, God help us if he is like the person he is on Twitter. But I, I think at some point you would want to see that actual person be on Twitter rather than just whoever this character is. And it feels like we're, we still haven't gotten any of that. The other thing that I would just add to this is that like adding to that specific kind of pressure is that it's very like at the front of my mind that like moderation on YouTube at one point led to a mass shooting. Like that's a real thing that really happened. And so like this is actually a very, very fraught area that like I don't know that Elon Musk can weigh in on without making things considerably worse. Because, again, like, think about who his followers are. Um, if he decides to criticize Twitter for taking down links to this shooting, that seems gross and wrong, and a bunch of people are going to be mad. But if he says, hey, I've reconsidered, you know, my thoughts about free speech, I've, I've got a more nuanced plan now, that potentially freaks out everybody who wanted to bring back Donald Trump to the platform. And also, like, potentially, like, not for nothing, puts Twitter employees at actual physical risk. So I just feel like it's a super ugly place to be. And like, it's when we talk about how difficult it is to moderate these platforms. This is specifically the thing that we're talking about. And, you know, there was that uh, thread from the former Reddit CEO about how he was like, Elon, you don't want this. Like, this is going to break you. This is going to be the worst thing you've ever you've ever seen. Like, this was what he meant. The thing I'll add is this is like inside baseball journalism, but it, I think it's useful context here. We're good at this story now. Like The Verge is good at it, and like kind of the broader media is good at it. Like The thing happens. We're like, what are the platforms going to do? We reach out to the comms team at the platforms. We hear from the head of policy. We hear from the head of trust and safety. They've made a decision. The decision has been like reasonably disseminated to their teams. They tell us the timeline on which they made the decision. This is how we know Twitch did it in minutes. Like In one very abstract way, it's like an exchange of form letters. 
right? We're like, what did you do? And like, here's what we did. And it all, it all makes sense. And we've like, we've learned how to communicate about content moderation between professionals at like a pretty high level. And like that requires a comms apparatus and a policy apparatus and a trust and safety team. And then they, maybe they got it wrong or maybe they didn't, but like, whatever, we know how to have the communication. Elon's companies don't have press departments. They don't have comms. They don't like communicating about what they're doing. He literally opened this by uh, starting an online harassment campaign against Twitter's top lawyer, Vijay Agade. Like, just crazy. Like, it's like this, it's not going to work if he takes over and he doesn't have that functionality. Because if you're running the town square, the town square has to be accountable to people. And so like the, we should wrap this up. But like one of the funniest parts about this whole week is that Twitter had an all hands this week and they told staff that there's no such thing as a deal being on hold. <laughs> Twitter saying they want the deal to be completed on the agreed upon terms, which, by the way, they have a binding contract, a long road to Elon into buying Twitter, which is like a crazy outcome. But, the, you know, you know who Twitter's head lawyer who would make those decisions and do those things are is Vijay Agade, who is in charge of content policy. So now you pissed off the lawyer, which is just one of those like classic errors. <laughs> <laughs> like, How much of this Twitter deal is just Elon Musk, his ego getting away from it? Like how much of this is just hubris? We're just watching like hubris happen. I would say at least 95%. <laughs> I was going to say a little lower, but I think you're probably right. It, yeah, I mean, it does seem like he thinks he can just chaos his way into whatever he wants. And Twitter holds all the actual cards here. I will say that like one thing that I've been reflecting on for a while now is that the reason why Elon Musk thinks he can do this is because he's chaosed his way into a lot of things and out of a lot of things just without consequences, or with consequences that are so minimal uh, for him, like, for instance, a $20 million fine from the SEC, that, you know, it's a slap on the wrist. And so on some level, I think he genuinely believes the laws of the United States of America don't apply to him. And I am very interested in finding out if he's right, because if that's true, we have a problem. Uh, we need to end the segment before our producer, Liam, like literally jumps through the Zoom and chokes me out. He's been writing in all caps in red. We're over in the dock. This is a real <laughs> thing that's happening. Um, the one thing I'll say, two decisions out of the Fifth Circuit, which represents Texas this week. Uh, one, they let the horrible Texas social media bill go through, which is not being appealed to the Supreme Court. Uh, hilarious backstory to that. They weren't expecting to win that. And now they have to find lawyers to argue their case in the Supreme Court and they can't find any lawyers who want to. It's very funny. And then two, Fifth Circuit, same crazy ass Fifth Circuit. You want to see some wild, you want to see judges losing their minds. Fifth Circuit, they reversed an SEC enforcement order this week saying that administrat the administrative state was not appropriate in this case, which is a real, if you're Elon and you're Federal appellate court is saying the SEC can't do stuff to to you. Ooh. All right, we got to take a break, Liz. I'm sure we will have you back on for this week in Elon for many weeks to come. This is like the story of the year. It's very entertaining for a variety of reasons. Uh, also, I think it might end with Twitter being gone, no matter what happens. That's my current prediction: is that no matter what happens at the end of this, Twitter is gone. Like they might, like Jack Dorsey might be like delete. I'll do it on the blockchain. <laughs> like, you never know. Like, what would happen? We'll see. All right. Thank you so much, Liz. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. We'll be right back with a lightning round. 
Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, we're back. There's gadget news. It's time for a gadget lightning round. We're opening and closing the show. It's an Elon sandwich with gadgets. Yes. <laughs> David has been thinking about like, you know, what are the what are the default structures of the Vergecast as we re, you know, refresh the show? Mm-hmm. Elon sandwich with gadgets. <laughs> we should start naming them and putting on the on the wall like a deli. That's actually like if if you were to perfectly describe every episode ever done of the Vergecast, an Elon sandwich with gadgets is like as about as close as you can <laughs> it's get, pretty I think. Good. All right. I, I will tell you, I'm looking at the rundown, and in parentheses, it just says, we're just going to let Kranz be excited for like 20 minutes here. Uh-huh. <laughs> so go ahead, Alex. I, I don't know if I can do 20 minutes. I could probably do 45. There we go. Yeah. This is going to be heavily edited for you listeners at home. So Apple is reportedly testing a foldable phone that has, as a secondary display, the outside display, an e-ink display. Oh, boy. I mean... It's, it's Ming-Chi Kuo, who, who we've talked about a lot on the show, usually really good at like picking out what Apple's working on, what's probably coming, usually kind of considered to be spot on. I refuse to believe they're spot on in this case, as much as I want them to be, as much as I want an e-ink iPhone. I just don't see how it happens. Well, so, OK, we, we should say like. This is one of those things that, like, the longer you cover this stuff, the the more you come to realize, like, the word testing is very important here, right? Because, like, Apple is testing everything, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. someone at Apple has bought everything that exists that is an electronic on planet Earth and has tried to build something with it. Like, it just has happened. And so I think... The part of what's interesting about leaks like these is they tend to come from the supply chain, which likely means someone has bought, you know, more than three of them. But the idea that Apple is testing a foldable with an e-ink display makes me very excited. Also means almost nothing about Apple's actual like future plans. This is the device that I want in my life more than maybe anything else in the entire world. But there is absolutely no indication that it's real other than that, like somewhere in the giant spaceship in Cupertino, Someone is like standing at a desk goofing around with an e-ink screen on a foldable display. Enough e-ink screens that it got back to quote to right. talk to like exactly. be like this is happening. Exactly, this is being tested, and like we don't know what kind of as we've discussed in the past. There are multiple types of e-ink electronic paper. E-ink is the company. They get very testy if you use e-ink to describe all electronic paper. Electronic paper is the actual display technology. There's a whole bunch out there. I was very excited a couple of weeks ago because there's a new like rollable color one. And like 
just in no way, maybe, oh no, there's a 5% possibility. I can see a 5% possibility of this phone existing in the world, right? Because 95% of me says, Apple will never go with this display technology that feels really immature. They, they typically go with very mature technologies. Or they like Apple Watch it and they're like, what if we just didn't have a display for most of the time? Right. And that's the 5%. I'm like, okay, if they put like a, they get a really good artist to do a really good e-ink wallpaper and they're just using it for like notifications and the clock and it will look really, really pretty. They'll be like, look at our artsy fartsy e-ink display. I could see that. I've been thinking about this in the context of uh, the Google AR glasses concept where Mm -hmm. they like got closer to a useful product by making it do far less. Yeah. Yes. Even though it's just a concept, and you know, whatever, we'll see if they ever ship anything. But right now, that what the Z Fold Three has a big ink or a big OLED screen on the front. Mm-hmm. There's other foldables that have big OLED screens on the front, and so basically, you get like you sh- you look at that screen, and you know it's running Android, and then like your expectation is like, now I have a tiny phone. <laughs> like, what if instead of unfolding my phone to use it, I just use the tiny shit version of my phone? Yeah. <laughs> Right. And it's like, I kind of understand it, but you can see why you'd say, well, we'll just change that expectation by doing ink. We'll save the power. We'll let it do what uh, time, maybe a, a notification of like calls or like number of iMessages, but to actually use the phone, you got to unfold it. Yeah. To me, yeah. I think the, 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 what the Apple watch looks like on your nightstand is an interesting analog there because it's become like a really useful use case for the watch that it's like it's also kind of your bedside clock and it'll show you like just teeny tiny bits of information uh and i feel like that kind of thing where you can have this thing that is always on and uses almost no power but can tell you like sort of the bare minimum that you need to know especially if apple is invested in the idea of not making you look at your phone a thousand times a day giving you more proactive information all this stuff like that's where a very basic thing that doesn't require you to open or even necessarily like touch your phone gets yeah. super interesting to me. What was that thing? The chumby. Remember the chumby? That thing ruled. It was like a little, it was like a little soft guy with like a, it's a little fluffy alarm clock. Yeah. Yeah. And you could like do Linux apps on it. <laughs> the future of the iPhone is really the front is a chumby. I, uh, is Apple bought chumby? Is that, is anything? What's, what's, What's Ming Chi Kuo have to say about Apple buying Chumby? <laughs> Mark Gurman, where are you at? Get on the Chumby story. I just see, I can see them cutting it down. I'm with David. Like, you reduce the expectations of what that front display can do by using a different display technology. Maybe you get some battery life back. Because, like, the little dumb Android phone on the front of a Z Flip is just, like, fully ridiculous. Bad. Yeah. Right. You don't need that anymore. Uh, Apple is announced they're going to bring live captions to the iPhone, iPad, and Mac. They're adding some gesture control to the Apple Watch. I saw a bunch of people read this. Is This is a live captions in particular or, like, a step towards AR. Hmm. Right? Because then you can, like, you can like listen to immediately understand text. It'll be like the Google Glasses. Yeah. I mean, in an interesting way, a lot of Apple's accessibility features have been kind of leading indicators for some of that stuff. Like, it was doing really high-end screen reader and voice stuff with as an accessibility feature before it brought it more broadly. It's been doing the, the like, gesture control that you can get on the watch is an accessibility feature that also, like, you don't have to squint that hard to see it as how you might control something on your phone by, like, pinching twice to answer or hang up a call. That kind of stuff, like, I think the live captions is probably just a genuinely useful accessibility feature, which I think is obviously a thing Apple cares a lot about. But, like, 
if you're going to do AR, you got to have something like that that works, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like the first key thing, right? You've yeah. got to be able to listen and understand the text so that you can like translate it to other text or something. iOS 15.5 came out, the new version of Mac OS came out. We're basically just in the run-up to WWDC here. Yep. The thing that is important about these updates is the thing that I failed to do, which is the studio display got its update, its oh. final update. And Dan's like, are you going to plug it in and change your review? And I'm like, do I have to? <laughs> so I promise yes. that like today or tomorrow, I'll plug it in. I'll give it the final update. And it's still going to be a six or whatever we gave it. Because it still looks bad. I look forward to you looking very slightly less sunburned. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> Unless they radically change the crop. I don't. I think it's still going to look bad. Bunch of headphone stuff. Uh, Chris Welch continues to curl around the the vents at Sonos, <laughs> uh, but he got a huge leak. Congra- actually, congratulations, Chris. He's been leaking all kinds of Sonos stuff. Um, he got the Sub Mini, which is a product we've all wanted for a million years because the existing Billion Sub years. is seven hundred and fifty dollars, which is too much money to pay for a subwoofer. Uh, it does not say how much it's going to cost, but it's going to be cheaper. It looks cool. I hope it sounds as good because the current sub is really nice. Yeah. It's just not $800 nice. Yeah. Did either of you also look at this render and think, oh, Sonos bought all of the old Mac Pro trash cans and put a speaker inside <laughs> of them? Just repurposing Because that's them. where I went. That's pretty good. It has a real um, uh, early 2000s Sony vibe to it as well. Oh, yeah. I can yeah. see that. Yeah. It's like, what it's if it's good. furniture, but also sound? Yeah. <laughs> That, that does sound like a Sony marketing campaign. <laughs> Would you like to sit on your <laughs> ottoman and play music through your butt? That's Sony. like very party speaker. <laughs> hey, if you want to talk about party speakers on the road I'm here for it. We can go a full <laughs> other hour. Here's what I want to know. If you work at Sony or JBL or whatever, and you are in the Bluetooth party speaker division, just <laughs> leak me your P&Ls, <laughs> right? Because we're on like 14 generations of these things. And they're, from what I can tell, a big business. Like, let me know. What is the budget for LEDs? What is the bill of materials <laughs> for extremely <laughs> garish LEDs on party speakers in your division? When you have your product meetings, does the PM come up and say, you know, we've, we, you know, team, we've been looking at the research from uh, the third generation of party speakers, which we just launched. And, you know, the data really tells us that in frat houses around America, we need to add even more cup holders to these speakers. Like, <laughs> you know, like, let me know. I'm, I've wanted the, the inside story of the party speaker explosion for many years. We're like four generations away from them just accidentally building a self-driving car around the speaker. <laughs> <laughs> like there's more innovation happening in party speakers than almost any other area in deck. They're great. We've had some amazing ones like float through the verge office. Uh, one more music thing. This is, it's not party speaker related, but there's one other thing. Chris Welch also reviewed this week. Uh, the OnePlus Nord Buds review, which are these like $40 wireless earbuds. And I've also been using them for the last week after like a tour of every cheap pair of wireless earbuds you can buy because I've lost four pairs of AirPods and just can't justify buying more AirPods. And so he landed basically in the same place that I did, which is like, it's the, the case is a little big. The microphone's not amazing, but they're 40 bucks and they pair really fast and they're pretty comfortable and they're, they're pretty good. So my new like mega cheap pair of like, I just need some headphones to wear while I'm walking the dog is these. So if you're looking for something stupid cheap that won't hurt when you lose, these are the ones. How are you losing them? 
Okay, so I'm convinced my mother-in-law stole one of my pairs. That's <laughs> let's start there. Okay, <laughs> absolutely, a hundred percent convinced. She didn't have AirPods, and then I lost mine, and then she had AirPods. Uh, <laughs> I'm <laughs> just saying uh, there was one pair that I still have, but I got caught in the rain. And so now the battery lasts like okay. the time it takes to put them on and then they die. A third pair I traveled with and I think left in San Francisco. So those I'm never getting back. And then a fourth pair is just gone. I have no idea. I bought it and all like like a shockingly quickly, like a couple of weeks later, they were just gone. So I'm just now I'm at a point. It's like AirPods and fancy sunglasses. I'm just not allowed to buy anymore because I will lose them. The Sony LinkBuds S, the case looks suspiciously like an AirPods case. So here's how you would know, because she'd never uh, buy those on her own. So you got to leave that line around and be like, that's when did good. you? Really, what you come on the broadcast for is ways to trick your mother in law. <laughs> <laughs> you got to wear a wire, David. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a bunch of new smart home stuff. I will say that one that's most interesting to me. Samsung is going to start testing matter on the smart things platform. It's like in beta. We'll see if it works, but it's the first big company to do it. And smart things is real. You know, like a lot of people have it. Yeah. It's the first one to go past the, like we are launching it soon thing into like, this is now a thing you can do. And they're actually like good. They went from launching a press release to launching a web page where you can sign up for a partner early access program that will come soon. So they've gotten to the form. Oh, is it stage. only coming soon? Okay, that's a bummer. I thought I thought at least the partners could already early access. All right, and we got to end this thing. We we have to talk about Eric and Pebble yep. and the man. Go ahead, David. The man wants a small Android phone. Yeah. Okay. So Eric Mijakovsky, who was the founder of Pebble and has since done a number of things, he's currently the CEO of Beeper, which is a cool multi-messaging app, messaging app that I kind of dig, like really, really badly wants to make Google, I guess make Google make a small Android phone. He wants a small Android phone to exist and he seems to want Google to make it. And basically what he seems to want and by what he seems to want is like he explicitly said this many times over and over again. He wants an iPhone mini running stock Android. And the theory behind it is like small phones are good. Not everyone wants the big monster giant phones. And he doesn't necessarily want it to even be like super, super fancy. Just like small, good, useful phone at a reasonable price. Uh, and he's trying to get 50,000 signatures. I'm not sure what he's going to do after that. Just like mail it to Sundar Pichai and see what happens. <laughs> but that is his quest. And I guess it sounds like, according to his website, over 10,000 people have already signed the petition. So he seems to be well on his way. Am I allowed to sign it? I'm going to go you sign it. You can sign it. I will say that Eric DM'd me the petition and was like, let's see if we can get Dieter and his new bosses to build this for us. <laughs> 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 Dieter, you got your first. Eric was at the uh, screening of Springboard that we did at the Computer History Museum. So we saw him there and he, we were joking about it. But um, I, I believe it. I just, here's what I know in my heart. People say they want this thing and then they go to the store and then they look around furtively and then they gravitate towards the cheapest, biggest screen they can buy and they buy that one and they take it home and they open Twitter and they say, why won't anyone make a small phone? And I swear to God, this is like the cycle of life yes. these phones. And it's because they never actually give us a truly good Small phone. The iPhone mini is a truly good small phone. What are you talking about? The battery life sucked for the first version. It's because the phone is small. That's like, that's the thing. Like, do you know what they do when they make the phone bigger is they put more batteries inside of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a you know miracle. What? You wouldn't have to 
you wouldn't have to do that though if it was an e-ink display. Then you could have small phone yeah. and battery for years. Okay, and that's, bring back the iPod that's Classic. That's what the people want as an e-ink. <laughs> that's what device. the people want. Eric, call me. Eric. <laughs> Let's do this. The Pebble was an e-ink display. <laughs> yeah. See, see, synergy. <laughs> All right. We got to end this year. Sign the petition. Let's see if we can force Dieter to do something. <laughs> I don't know what kind of disclosure you need that to be. If someone can tell me what the Dieter disclosure needs to be, disclosure, Dieter's my boy. Like, I don't know what you want me to That's say. Good. That works. Dieter's our co-founder, but now doesn't. Uh, I will say that Dieter and I are, um, we're learning what we can talk about because we want to be very respectful of the fact that we can't just share a brain anymore. And so mostly... It's me threatening to buy him increasingly hard to use old digital cameras. <laughs> I bought him an Apple Quick Take 100, and I was mistaken because oh, wow. I thought that I thought it was a Sony Mavica that shot to floppy disk, which is its own set of challenges. I just want to yeah. be clear, but no, <laughs> Apple actually had licensed it from Kodak, and it only works with a special cable. Yes, that you have to plug into a power Macintosh. Wow, they, yes. the software is never updated, and it only spits out. Uh, eight VGA quality photos in a proprietary <laughs> image format or 32 320 by 240 image formats. In a yeah. and so Dieter just sent me a list. He sent me like an invoice of all the cables he has to buy. <laughs> <laughs> this, is what, this is who we are now. Uh, I'm going to buy him that Mavica next, though. If you're listening, man, the, the second you solve the quick take 100... You'll be solving a camera with a significant number of motors inside of it to operate a floppy disk. It's going to be great. <laughs> All right. That's the show. A wild one. Thanks to Liz. Uh, you can tweet at all of us. You know this? You can tweet at David. He's at Pierce. Alex is Alex H. Kranz. Liz is MS Lopato. I am at Reckless. There's a bunch of stuff to call out on the site this week. Great story about how fears of electromagnetic radiation have spawned this entire industry of like snake oil RF protectors. It's very good. Uh, and then Mia did a great story on the content moderation challenges of the Buffalo shooting live stream. If you listen to that part during our list conversation, you want to know more. It's, it's all in there. Mia did a great job pulling it apart. Uh, decoder this week was nebula CEO, Dave Wiskus. That was actually a great conversation. Yeah, he was great. I really enjoyed that one. Usually creator company, conversations are like how they're going to take over Disney. And this one was like, no, here's just how we're going to get people paid a healthy amount of money so they can Aww. live balanced lives. Like I appreciate it. Uh, and then Alex, you got, what's the mini series is the last episode of the mini series. And I spoke with Ben Heck, who was one of the first guys to really like start modding Xbox 360 controllers to make them more accessible. And I spoke with Bryce Johnson from Microsoft. Who's one of the co-creators of the adaptive controller it was very, very cool. It was a good episode. It was wild. It's all good. Yeah. We just talked a lot about like PCB boards and contact points and kind of the challenges of making controllers accessible. Yeah. Uh, ben Heck is a Madison guy. I've, I've had beers and burgers in Madison with Ben Heck in the past. He's, he is a character. That's what I will say. <laughs> the purest character you will ever find. Great episode. Listen to that. Other than that, that we've gone over as always. So that's it. That's for chest. Rock and roll. Thanks for listening to this week's show. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email at vergecastattheverge.com. And if you liked the show, share it with a friend. Vergecast is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by me, Liam James, and our senior audio director, Andrew Marino. 
Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. That's it. We'll see you next week. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.